Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters. I once again greet you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we come again to the final uh, chapters and moments in the book of Genesis. And uh, I think that we probably have maybe two, maybe three more sermons left in this long journey that we have taken together through the book of Genesis. Uh, when we are finished with this book, it will be three years that we have been walking through the book of Genesis. And we come now again to the final moments of the life of the prophet Israel. He's not called that very often, is he? But he is truly a prophet. One commentator refers to these verses here at the end of Genesis 49 as Jacob's finest hour. And he had lived a long life. He was a man of 147 years. And I think through our studies, you might be able to, to see that much of the 147 years were lived in a, a most undistinguished way. Jacob had been a deceitful man, hadn't he? He had been a tricky man. At times, Jacob had been weak in his faith. And at times, his faith seemed to waver. Jacob was often downcast and discouraged. Jacob, no doubt, wasted many years of his life. Much of his 40, 147 years, if you were to ask Jacob, could probably look, be looked back on with regret. But toward the end, the end of his journey, by God's grace, he emerged as Israel, leaving Jacob behind. This may be why we love Jacob so much. Because he so often reminds us of ourselves, doesn't he? We must confess that we too have been deceitful at times, haven't we? We too have been tricky. We must confess that we too have, we've often been weak. We've often been wavered in our faith. We've often worried about things more than we should. We've often been concerned about the cares and concerns about this world and not the world to come more than we should. We've often had days of being downcast and discouraged. And if we were completely honest, we too might confess that we have wasted many years of our lives. Jacob reminds us so much of ourselves. But I pray that it is not just the undistinguished way of Jacob that we can identify with. But I pray that it is the faith of Israel. In spite of all of his sins and failures and shortcomings, that it is the faith of Israel that we are able to most identify with. Here in this 49th chapter, we see Israel finishing strong. Here in this 49th chapter, we see Israel finishing the race with strength and vigor. 
147 years old and yet sprinting with all of his might and energy towards the finish line. As we dismiss the children just a few moments ago, we see them running and they're skipping and they're jumping to Sunday school. And we're given a vision of our children of youthfulness and life. And yet here, once again, we are speaking about death. And it may seem like the wind is being taken out of our sails each time that we speak about death. Must we speak about death again? Here we goes with death again. I assure you that our consideration of death is not to take the wind out of your sails, but rather it is to prepare us to set sail for eternity. We are on the shores, if you will. Our boats are being prepared. We are making sure that all things are in order so that when we finally do set sail, there will be only smooth and calm waters ahead of us. It is the responsibility of your elders to prepare you not just to to live for Christ, but also to die. It is what Christ often said to his followers, isn't it? Take up your cross and follow me. It is what Christ often said to his followers, isn't it? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. We do not just teach you to live and not just teach you to die, but also to die well. How many have we known that have died in sin, that although they have died with their confession of faith still firm within their hearts, yet they died in in a manner unbecoming of a true believer? We are preparing you. And if we are not, then we are not doing our full responsibility. We are preparing you to die, preparing you for eternity. The Puritan Richard Baxter in his book, The Reformed Pastor, says of his preaching, listen to how he, how he sees preaching from this vantage point. I preached as sure to never preach again. I preached as though this sermon would be my last sermon. As a dying man to dying men. Every sermon that we preach, we preach as if it is, it could be our last sermon. And if it, if it is from this vantage point, possibly our last ver- sermon preached, then it is also possibly your last sermon heard. Therefore, if it is your last sermon heard, what kind of attentiveness would you give to this message? We take it for granted, don't we? I'll see you next week. Maybe next week when we get to God meant it for, or you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, I'll be more attentive. But what if this was your last sermon? What if this was the very last words from God's word that you would ever hear? Your whole life, our whole life, must be lived like the final moments of Israel. 
And if you could start now and make it to 147, living as Israel lived, you would have less days to regret than more days to be thankful of. As Israel went to Egypt, the Spirit of God gave Israel a resolve to be immovable in his faith to God Most High. He, his trust in God seemed to burn with hot fire, with fervor. And now, at the very end, he seems to rise to great heights of faith and courage. Don't you want to live the rest of your life, the rest of your days that way? Maybe 14 years of smooth sailing, walking with God, Israel had at the final days. One theologian compares him to his father, Isaac, saying, Isaac old age, old, Isaac's old age shamed his youth, but Jacob's old age rescues his youth. He didn't do so good in the beginning. But he is flourishing now at the end. Uh, Which would you like? To do well at the end. After a long life of doing evil. Or would you rather start now? Living a good life and even finishing strong. And how could he not finish strong? He's finally come to realize that all of his life. It's not against him that all of these things, as he says, are not against him, but they are for him. He's come to know at the end of it all that God has meant all of the difficulties, not for evil, but for good. How could he then not be steadfast and immovable in his faith? Haven't you been able to look back? Pastor Isaiah called us to do it a few moments ago. Haven't you been able to look back now and see the the faithfulness of God in spite of all of your difficulties, in spite of all of the evils that have come your way and you have made it to the other side, now looking at them from this vantage point, from a, a higher vantage point and saying, I see now it was not for evil. I see now it was not for my destruction. I see now it was for my good. It was for my growth. It was for so that my faith in God might increase, not diminish. Well, then you should be steadfast. Well, then you should be immovable. Well, then you and your faith should be firm and and rock solid in Christ. Because you are still here. What the enemy meant for evil was not able to destroy you. It only made your faith in God stronger. What we read in these final moments of the life of Israel is what the book of Hebrews marks as Israel's finest moments of his life. Of all of the things that we have read through the life of Jacob... The book of Hebrews says this was his finest moment. It was the very end. And let this be an encouragement to you, people of God. You may be thinking that your life, or at least the best part of your life, is nearly over and gone. 
You may see the end drawing near and you may look back and feel a degree of disappointment and discouragement. You may not have been the the man or the woman that you have hoped to be. You may not have done for God what you know you could have and maybe should have done. Perhaps there is a chill in your soul when you begin to think about it. And think that it's just too late now. Dear Saint, that need not be the case. That need not be the case. Your last days, months and years may be the best days, months and years of your life yet. Even if you only have a short time to live, you know not when your final breath will be breathed. Even if you only have a short time to live, it may be that you will accomplish more ahead of you than behind you for God. By God's grace and God's help, we may still bear much and not just much fruit, but good fruit. We can still finish the race with strength and vigor. We can still exit this world with the gospel on our lips and leave behind a lasting witness to the surety Promises of God in Christ Jesus. Are you prepared to die? You cannot begin to live until you are prepared to die. So this morning then, with that long soliloquy, we will consider two points In preparing to see God. Number one, preparing in faith. This is Genesis chapter 49, verses 29 to 33. I think that if we were reading through the final moments of the life of Jacob, we could see clearly that Jacob was not surprised by death. Israel and death had a meeting And the meeting did not catch Israel by surprise. By God's grace, he was given eyes to see that final enemy coming. But he wasn't afraid of it. It's coming. But I'm not afraid of it. In the 48th chapter, he gathers his sons together and says, I'm about to die. In the 49th chapter, he says... I'm about to be gathered to my people. Oh, to God that we would be given the the space and the clarity to be able to see death coming and not fear it. Israel was realistic. He was clear-eyed. He knows that this present world he will not call home forever. And he faces the, the very difficult reality of death. We too must come to terms with this reality. We will die. This does not mean that we celebrate death. Hooray for death. Not in the least. 
It does not mean that we embrace death like some kind of joy, that we're happy to see it. We're not happy to see death. I heard one uh, celebrity once upon a time say, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Death is not natural per se. Death is the effect of the fall. But listen, the sting of death is the effect of the fall. Not just death, but the sting of death is a result of the fall. It's the result of our sin and rebellion to God. Not that we die. Not that our bodies are translated from this place to another. We were all supposed to be translated from life to greater life. Sin marred that translation. Sin marred our translation from life to greater life. But death would be the process in which we would go from this to that. But sin brings a sting into that process. Sin throws a a wrench into that process. Because man no longer goes from life to life, but now, now man goes from life to death. And there's a stinging reality. It's why you still cry at funerals. We have funerals sometimes and we call them celebrations of life when the person is going to hell. We don't want to come to terms with the reality of what comes next. And for the person who does not have their faith in Christ, what comes next is a Christless eternity. We will all depart. Now death has become our greatest enemy. Thomas Watson appropriately appropriately said, when we die, we all have some sense of fret. When we die, we will all in some kind of way be worried in a sense. Our faith for the believer will be secure. But here's what Watson says, and I agree with him. Did we ever hear any cry out on their deathbed? I've been too holy. Oh, Lord, I've prayed too much. Or I've walked with God so much. No, we will all be on our deathbed saying, I should have prayed more. I should have read more. I should have discipled my children more. I should have been a better evangelist to my family, to the the, the lost. I should have, I should, I should have. That will be the words on our lips. But God, I commit my spirit into your hands and pray that you would have mercy on me. It's the words that come from all the best of us. The the ones who know Christ the best. Who say, it's not my righteousness, it's His. Lord, receive me. 
Watson says, no, that which has cut them to the heart has been this, that they have not walked more closely with God, that they have not wrung their hand and torn their hair to think of that they have been so bewitched with the pleasures of this world. We'll be, he said, for some on our bed and we will be wringing our hands. I, I spent too much time there. I gave too much of my attention there. I gave too much of my energy there. God, why did I, why did I waste it? We'll be pulling out whatever hair we have left. What was it then that gave Israel the confidence to worship God on his staff, as Hebrews tells us, and have the peace to be able to sit and to gather his feet into his bed and breathe his last. How was this man able to look back at all of his undistinguished, sinful, deceitful ways and have the confidence to know that he would be gathered to his people, the people of God. Dear saints, it is for the same reason that you and I should have the confidence that when the last great enemy death comes to our door, that we too can pull our feet into our bed and breathe our last. And say into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. It is because we have not trusted in the perfection of ourselves, but in the perfection of another and the absolute reliability of his promises. His promises, his perfections. Israel's eyes were not inward, they were outward. He was not looking at his own self-righteousness but at the righteousness of another. His eyes were not fixed on Egypt, but they were fixed on Canaan, which means his eyes were fixed on Christ. Where are your eyes this morning? Will you be the one, as Watson says, wringing his hands, saying, I loved Egypt too much. Israel at the very end could have said, it's nice here. Israel or Egypt has been good to me. Bury me in one of those tombs. Bury me in one of those pyramids. Lay me with the gods of Egypt. They've been good to me. No, not in the least. Don't you leave me here. Egypt has been nothing but good to him. Egypt is where he and his family have flourished more in 14 years than they did all of the hundred and so years that they did somewhere else in Canaan, the promised land. And yet, take me home. Don't you leave me here, he says to his sons. Bury me. Bury me with my fathers in Canaan. My eyes aren't in Egypt. My heart isn't in Egypt. My eyes are in Canaan. And so is my heart. Physically in Egypt, but heart in Canaan. For it was in Canaan that the promises of God were most proclaimed. If I am here, then I can't proclaim what God is promising to His people. My very presence, my very body, though my soul has departed from it, 
My very body being in Canaan proclaims to you and to you and to all of my progeny that there will rise one who will crush the head of the serpent. He will give us this land, but take us to a greater land. He will make us a nation and we won't just be one. We will be of many and of the many. We will be one. The true Israel. Take me home. Holidays are nice, aren't they? Vacations are nice. You can stay in the most elaborate hotels. You can have the most fluffy of pillows and the whitest of sheets. The air can be just the way you like it. But there's nothing like home. Take me back to my bed. The bed that has my indentation in it. The pillow that is yellow from certain things that come out of my mouth during the night. But I love that pillow. It's my pillow. It's home. Take me home. He believed in what God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. A land God will give, a nation He will make us, a seed will come forth from the woman, and nations will rise, and He will bless the nations. But don't you leave me here. Take me where I can declare the precious promises of God. Then He says, don't just take me anywhere. Bury me in the cave, in the field. The one purchased by Ephron or purchased from Ephron the Hittite. And at this point, the language becomes formal and legal and precise. The cave that is in Machpelah, he says, near Mamre in, the, in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron, the Hittite, along with the field. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. This is legal language. He's saying to his sons, this belongs to us. Here is where it came from. Here is who bought it. And now it is ours. Bury me there. Israel is speaking almost as as if he were a lawyer. He's making it absolutely clear what and who this uh, land belongs to. The title deed is ours. And here's what you are to do. These are my final Requests from you. The land is legally and unquestionably theirs. And he identifies the land very precisely as is done in title deeds. No vagueness, no uncertainty as to who it belongs to. Even though the family has been in Egypt for the past 14 years, the land there still belongs to them. And they must go back and stake claim to their land. Israel is passing the land to them. There Abraham and his wife were buried. Isaac and his wife were buried. Leah is buried there. It's not just family ties. It's covenant loyalty. Israel holds fast to the covenant promises of God. Think about this. Of the wives that Jacob had, which one did he love the most? You should know the answer to that. It's Rachel or Sarah. 
He loved Sarah the most. Where was Sarah buried? Not in the cave in Machpelah. Sarah was buried in Bethlehem. And yet, as most husbands and wives plan to do when they die, most husbands and wives will be buried next to one another. And although Jacob loved Sarah with all of his heart, he chooses not to be married next to her because he loves someone else greater. And it's not Leah. It's God. God has given us promises. And in order for me to declare my faith in God and my love for God, I must be buried where the promises of God are, not where my beloved wife is. Despite his great love for Sarah, Israel commands that he be buried in Canaan so that by his very presence, he would proclaim his faith in God. His love for God far exceeds any earthly ties, any earthly affections that he might have. And he's making this point abundantly clear once again. I don't belong in Egypt. Take me home. Israel, in his final moments, proclaims the gospel. God will keep his promises. God will take us back to the land that he has promised to give to our descendants. And you might imagine this aged old man pointing his finger at his sons, speaking to them with authority on behalf of God, prophesying to his children, keep your eyes on the one who will rise God will give us this land. Our descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. His final words then are a a kind of leaning into the finish line at the very end of a race. I I love the, the 80s in which I was raised in. The 90s were crazy. But the 80s were fun. I remember watching with my dad and my sister, who uh, many of you don't know, was a, a spectacular track and field athlete in, in school. And we used to watch uh, Jackie Joyner Kersey and uh, Carl Lewis and all of these. And it seemed like the Olympics were always on. But we would watch these uh, flow Joe as they would run And there would be that final moment at the very end of their sprints when they would lean into the finish line. And even though they would be far ahead of the the other competitors, they would still lean in and finish strong. Israel here is leaning in to the finish line. He's leaning into glory. Uh, They are, uh, these moments for Israel are the the boxer's final punches at the end of a 12-round fight. They are the mother in labor giving her final push before delivery. They are the storyteller's final stroke of his pen. And he finished well. 
He has run the race. He's fought the good fight. Laid up for him now was a crown of glory. That when he saw the master, he would ultimately remove that crown and lay it at the master's feet. And dear saints, it was because his faith was in Christ that the sting of death was null and void. The great enemy of death has been defeated by the doing and dying and rising of Christ. Christ is the reason why death no longer has a sting. Christ has restored that translation that we spoke from, of from life to life. He has restored the translation that was initially designed for the image bearers of God. We, we lost our reward by our disobedience. But because of the work of Christ, he has earned all of the benefits that were lost by us. And he has given them to us by grace. Were they costly? Yes. Will they cost you? No. They've cost him the eternal one, his blood. But they are free. They are free to you. They are free to you who place your faith in Christ alone. They are a work of His grace and a gift of His grace. Have you received this gracious, priceless gift from Christ? And if you have, then you can look at death as it approaches and have no fear. You can worship God on your staff. Because you know you have peace with God. A peace that surpasses all understanding. You can, like Israel, gather your feet into your bed of rest and know that your last breath breathed will be one breathe in faith. What a blessing to know that the last breath you take will be the first breath then in glory. So give me the last then. If my last means my first, and that first will be an everlasting one, then Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. We, too, can follow this example of Israel. We can be a witness to the faithfulness of God. And don't you want that? We can call those who have ears to hear, to follow Christ, to put away sin, to put on Christ. We can testify that if your faith is in Christ and you have a perfect Savior who will surely carry you home. The scriptures say that his feet were gathered into his bed and he breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. And again, what an example for us. What a testimony for us. We must be ready for that moment. There must be no clinging to this earth. There must be no holding on to something that we must ultimately let go of. 
We must be sure that we have an inheritance and we must be able to commend others of that inheritance. You may not have a field. You may not have a car to pass down or jewelry to pass down. And you may not have uh, a large sum of money to give to your children, but you have something greater. You have Christ. And He is more valuable than any silver, any gold, any diamond, any material thing in this world. You pass on Christ. We might imagine ourselves in this chamber of death, as if you will. And as their father breathed his last, the brothers, knowing the time has come, they are now standing in the presence of a body that no longer has a soul. A peculiar thing, isn't it? Some of you know this moment. The moment when you are present and the soul leaves the body. For the ones that you love, the only words that can be expressed are through emotion. You can almost say no words. There's an outpouring of tears that is exactly what we are seeing here in this final chapter in the funeral of Israel. We are told in our second point, uh, and this is proceeding in power, uh, second and finally. We are told that Joseph threw himself over his father and wept over him and kissed him. Only a few of us know that moment. Only a few of us know the moment when your mother or your father pass and you were able to be present in the death chamber and to throw yourself on their face and kiss them. Let me say to you from experience, it's not a pleasant moment. It's not one I wish on anyone. But it is a reality of life and death. And here we see Joseph weeping. And he is truly the weeping prophet, isn't he? He wept aloud for his brothers to rescue him from the pit. He wept aloud when he was reunited with his brothers. And now as his father is being gathered to his people, Joseph weeps aloud again. And he will weep one final time when his brothers come to him, beg for mercy and forgiveness. The scriptures will say in chapter 50, and Joseph wept. Not because he was a crybaby. There's no shame in, in tears, saints. This moment of Joseph falling on his face, the face of his departed father, it's a very, very passionate and endearing picture, if you can imagine it in your mind's eye. It's a picture of a man who loved his father dearly. <clears throat> it's almost a picture of a little boy 
crying over his father as his father walks out of the door to go to work. It's a beautiful picture, and yet it is a sad picture. But nevertheless, a love between a father and son. And just as God promised Israel, Joseph closed his father's eyes. Joseph then prepares to fulfill his father's commission to take his body to Canaan and to bury him in the cave of Machpelah. He must first make arrangements to have his father's body embalmed. And the Egyptians were particularly skilled at this. But there's a striking point in this passage. In verse 3, we are told that the Egyptians, they mourn for Israel. Seventy days. The Egyptians, all of Egypt, mourns for Israel for 70 days. Uh, There is a countrywide mourning over the death of Israel. And we here in this country, we have experienced countrywide, even uh, nationwide or worldwide mournings at times. Uh, Some of us might remember the assassinations of JFK and MLK. There was wide, wide uh, spread shock in this country and beyond. Some of us uh, might remember when Princess Diana died in the car accident. Or more recently when Kobe Bryant died in that helicopter accident. We know the kind of countrywide, even worldwide effect that these deaths had on the world. When Israel died, the nation of Egypt mourned. They mourned with Joseph and his brothers over Israel. What an influence this man had on the nation then. He is the father of the man who saved our lives. And they showed him the proper honor that he deserved. Seventy days. Uh, Seventy-nine days were meant for and reserved for the kings of Egypt. And here is Israel being mourned as if he was one of their kings. John Gill, this is important in his commentary, rightly points out that 70 days is not a law or prescription by God for the time frame that we are to mourn our loved ones who pass away. I hope that makes sense. That means this, that God is not saying to us that when someone dies, you should be in mourning for 70 days. Mourning is appropriate. It is our final debt to those who we love. And yet there must come a time when mourning ends. There must come a time when mourning ends. We we cannot must not mourn for the rest of our lives. If we mourn for the rest of our lives, it says something about our lack of faith in the plans and purposes of God. Is God sovereign? Yes. Then did God allow this person to die? Yes. Then there must be a reason for it. True. Then why are you still mourning? Our continuous mourning shows that we don't believe in the sovereignty, the purposes, and the plans of God. 
we believe that somehow God didn't know what he was doing and that Satan somehow snuck in and pulled a fast one on God. There was a time to mourn. And the book of Ecclesiastes tells that there's also a time to dance. So it was with Joseph and his brothers and the nation of Egypt. They must get on with the business of living. Someone has died. Now get on with the business of living. How? With your eyes fixed on Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. And first on the list to do was to get his father back to Canaan. And Joseph displays that he's still a man under authority when he requests to the king of Egypt to go to fulfill his oath to his father. And he also promises that he will return when the oath has been fulfilled. He's a man under authority. He was allowed to go to fulfill his oath. And in verses 7 through 11, we are told that there is a great procession. Now listen closely here. There is a great procession of dignitaries, military leaders that go with Joseph into the land of Canaan. The Canaanites, as they are entering, you can imagine this this um, uh, large procession of dignitaries and royals marching into Canaan. And as the Canaanites are seeing this procession, they are saying this 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 is a great morning for the Egyptians. This must have been a, a, a special man. Now, one commentator says this is the grandest state funeral anywhere in the Bible. All of the nobles. All of the greatest of the empire, all of the greatest of the greatest empire on the earth, they are joining in to this funeral. They are mourning for Israel like one of their kings again. Now we know that nothing in the scriptures is meaningless. So then you should ask the Bible a question. God, why are you showing us this funeral here? What's the purpose of describing some of the dignitaries, some of the words like cattle and great community? What are you trying to show us here in your word? Well, it could be simply just that, that we are seeing a funeral and it is nothing more than a funeral. But it is interesting that we are seeing here in this funeral something similar to something that we see elsewhere. Namely, in the book of Exodus, when the Lord delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt. Well, what do we mean? First, theologians note that the route that was traveled from Egypt to Canaan was not the most direct and obvious route. Scholars say that the morning place that they arrived at, Atad, the threshing floor in verse 10, is somewhere between the Dead Sea and the city of Jericho. Meaning, meaning this is very close to the later route that would be taken by the people of Israel in the Exodus as they entered into the promised land. What does that mean? That means that the funeral procession that the sons of Israel were traveling on would be the same, possibly the same, Road that would be traveled by the children of Israel 400 years later when they went through in the Exodus. 
Secondly, the language is interesting, isn't it? Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And Moses is using language that he has used in the book of Exodus, which he also wrote. Words like flocks and herds, chariots, horsemen, a very large company. All of these words are also used in the book of Exodus. All of these Hebrew words will be said in chapter 12, 13, and 14 of the book of Exodus. In the Exodus of the children of Israel. These are Exodus words then. As Israel goes out with their flocks and their herds, as chariots and horsemen are with them in this large company, Egypt is following him. This is not coincidental. They are divine fulfillments. They are shadows of what is to come. The Lord is showing the people of Israel that this funeral procession is really a victory lap. They, they are taking Israel out of Egypt and bringing him into the land of promise. It is a dress rehearsal for a later journey. It is a shadow of a deliverance that is still to come and that will be fulfilled in one part as the people in bondage are released from their slavery in Egypt and go into the promised land. Notice also Israel, they don't sneak or creep out of Israel or out of Egypt. They leave freely. They go with Pharaoh's permission and with all of the pomp and ceremony of Egypt. But the nobility is there. The scriptures say that that there is a military presence there. Well, what's the purpose of the military being there as well? God is showing that one day Israel will leave the land freely again. And they will leave and triumph again. They will leave with Pharaoh's permission. And then his heart will be hard and he will send all of these chariots after Israel again. He will send the military might after Israel again. But this time Israel will walk out over their dead bodies. And they will be swallowed up by the sea. This will be a great triumph to come. Once again, there will be mourning. And the Egyptians will be the one mourning. They will be mourning as God once again shows that there is no God under heaven. In heaven or under the earth except for the Lord God Almighty alone. So Jacob, Israel, if you will, and the exodus of his body back to the land of promise is a picture of a future exodus of the children of Israel when God will deliver them out of bondage and into the land of promise. Uh, Men and women, those who have gone both through the race and through women of the word, this is called biblical theology. The very thing that we have just walked through. And it's so magnificent. It's so unexpected. So public that that it must be God who is doing this. Not Pharaoh. 
God declares that he is the one who delivers. It was no ordinary happening. This procession and the manner of the going shows that God has enabled this. And dear saints, we are seeing a, a shadow of, of exodus in Jacob's body leaving. We are seeing a greater exodus when the children of Israel leave. But we are also waiting our own exodus, aren't we? For we are true Israel. We are the true people of God. And we are now waiting for our exodus from this Egypt. And God has promised to not leave our bodies here. But He has promised to take our bodies into heavenly Canaan. Where we will be there forever. And it is a triumphant victory already won by Christ in the resurrection of His body. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And He has promised that since He has been raised, we too will be raised. Joseph's lifting his father's body is in a type a type of, of Christ lift, being lifted. And Him lifting our bodies so that we might be raised as He was raised. Our bodies will be lifted up out of this Egypt. Our bodies will be taken into that heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal city of God. And we will have our rest. What a precious promise that we have in Christ Jesus. The Lord has said in the book of Revelation twice at the very end, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. It shall be a joyful procession. There will be no mourning in this procession. There will only be, oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. My voice is gone right now. I couldn't sing anyway, but still. It shall be a glorious exodus from the darkness of this world to the light of holiness in Christ Jesus. In all of this, this flow of redemptive history, there is one simple question to ask. Are you ready for your exodus? Are you ready for your body to pass through the sea in safety under the protective hand of God? And if you are not ready to see death and to uh, not fear it, then I encourage you, repent of your sin, place your faith in Christ alone, and you will find him to be a perfect savior. And he will not leave your body here in Egypt. He will carry you let us pray. Uh, to you alone, Lord, be glory and praise and honor. Thank you for the precious promises that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you that ye, they are yea and amen. There is surety and confidence in all that you have promised for those who have placed their faith in you. You are the greater Joseph. And Joseph who lifted his father's body out of Egypt. Lord, you will lift us out of this world and bring us home. Oh, happy day. When Jesus walked and when he took my sin away. Lord, we praise you and give to you honor.
In Christ's name, amen.